Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here tonight. Uh, I am here, I have the privilege of introducing tonight's speaker, Amy Chua. Professor Chua finished her bachelor's degree magna cum laude from Harvard and cum laude from Harvard Law School, uh, where she also served as executive editor of the Harvard Law Review. For those of you who don't, aren't familiar with these, this is really the top notch, top of the line, the smartest, smartest that you can be. Uh, she is currently the John M. Duff, Jr. Professor of Law at Yale Law School and is the author of two critically acclaimed books, World on Fire, How Exporting Free Market Democracy Breeds Ethnic uh, Hatred and Global Instability, and her most recent book, Day of Empire, How Hyperpowers Rise to Global Dominance and Why They Fall. Ms. Chua, Professor Chua has become the media darling with this book. Uh, let me just describe or, or give you a brief synopsis of some of the reviewers. Clear-eyed, hard-headed, says the Los Angeles Times. Brilliant, says the National Review. Fascinating, says Salon. Ambitious and challenging, Chicago Tribune. Absorbing, from the New York Times. So who is Amy Chua? Well, I'd like to tell you a little bit about her by talking about her family. Uh, Professor Chua is the daughter of Chinese immigrants who grew up in the Philippines. Her mother and father were just children when the Japanese occupied that country during World War II. Professor Chua calls her, father's the, her father the quintessential American and the black sheep of the family. Brilliant at math, in love with astronomy and philosophy, he turned his back on the family business and defied every plan they had for him. He and his young bride left their families behind in the Philippines and immigrated to the United States, not knowing a soul. And they lived, they, were, they lived only on their student scholarships to MIT. Her father would become a tenured professor at age 31 and win a series of national engineering awards and would eventually become known as the founder of nonlinear circuit theory. Obviously, education was of great importance in this family. So it's no surprise that as a young child, Professor Chua's parents told her that anything less than an A on her report card was unacceptable. And once, while in the eighth grade, after winning second place in a history contest, her father scolded her and told her, never, never disgrace me like that again. <laughs> Professor Chua and her sisters were required to speak Chinese at home. The punishment for any violation of this rule was a whack with the chopsticks. For every English word that was uttered, English word accidentally uttered. She and her sisters were drilled in math and piano every afternoon. And while this may sound harsh, Professor Trua said that she had a very, very happy childhood, and this upbringing gave her strength and confidence in herself. Like Professor Trua, I too grew up with two cultures listening to the Beatles one day and the Beijing opera the next. The biggest difference was that while she excelled in school, I barely passed. <laughs> However, we have another thing in common, and that is that both our parents taught us 
the magnificence of China's 5,000-year five history and the superiority of the Chinese culture. Both her parents and my parents were descendants from the Han people, considered the pure ethnic Chinese in China. As Professor Chua once explained, among the Chuas, the pronoun we both meant we Han Chinese and we Americans. Professor Chua and I not only were exposed to the principles of globalization at a very early age, we've lived it most of our lives. Having, we have two perspectives, Chinese and American. Professor Chua sees her latest work, Day of Empire, as a warning to how xenophobia can undermine even the most democratic societies. She writes on the dangers, she writes on the most, some of the most controversial issues, torture, the dangers of exporting democracy, and the fall of the United States. Yet, unlike many others who are willing to discuss these topics, she is able to present ideas from a very scholarly point of view. So, it is my distinct honor to introduce you to the daughter my father wishes he had had. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Amy Chua. Thank you so much, Esther, for that fabulous introduction. I'm not going to be able to, uh, to match that one. And thank you all for coming this evening. It is a great pleasure and honor for me to be here at the Dallas Public Library. And I'd like to offer um, uh, a special thanks to um, uh, Laurie Evans and Jim Falk for, for inviting me and organizing this event. So as instructed, my plan is to speak for about 25 minutes. And uh, what I thought I'd do is just start by presenting the main thesis of my new book, Day of Empire, with its modest subtitle, How Hyperpowers Rise to Global Dominance and Why They Fall. Um, and I'll try to illustrate that thesis with specific examples from the ancient Persian Empire, founded in 550 BC, to the Great Mongol Empire of the 13th century, to the British Empire. I'll then shift my focus back to the present day and say something about the implications of my thesis for the United States in the 21st century. And if we have time, I'll also offer um, some predictions and actually surprising implications, I think, uh, about, uh, of my thesis for the power that everybody's talking about, China. Um, and then we'll open things up for questions. I'm really looking forward to hearing from all of you. So let me begin by taking you all back to 1999, um, that was just 10 years ago, but to me, it seems like ages. When, in a fit of pique, France's foreign minister, Hubert Vedrine, declared that the United States had become the world's single hyperpower, dominant in all categories, militarily, economically, technologically, and culturally, and that this was unacceptable to France. <laughs> Although Vedrine meant hyperpower critically, uh, in coining that term, he actually captured a historical development of fundamental importance. And that's what my book is about. Um, not just any empires, not just great powers, or even superpowers, but rather this far rarer phenomenon of hyperpowers, by which I mean the remarkably few societies, by my count only six or seven in all of human history, that amassed such uh, extraordinary economic and military might that they basically dominated the world. 
Who were history's hyperpowers, and what, if anything, can they teach us about our own times? It took me over five years to reach my own uh, answers to these questions, and what I have found is a really remarkable pattern, and that is that for all their enormous differences, every hyperpower in history was strikingly tolerant and pluralistic during its rise to global preeminence, at least judged by the standards of the time. Indeed, in every case, tolerance was indispensable to the achievement of hegemony. Conversely, the decline of hyperpowers has repeatedly coincided with intolerance and xenophobia. But here's the catch. It was also too much tolerance, in a sense, that sowed the seeds of decline. Now, I know those are big claims, so let me first clarify some of the terms I'm using. First of all, um, I want to make clear that I'm using a super strict definition of hyperpower. For my purposes, I consider a nation or empire a hyperpower only if it satisfies both of two conditions. One, it, its economic and military power clearly surpasses that of all its contemporaneous rivals. And two, it projects its power over so vast an area of the globe and over so immense a population that it breaks the bounds of mere local or even regional preeminence. So under this strict definition, Louis XIV's France, no matter how magnificent, was not a hyperpower. Neither was the Habsburg's empire or even the United States during the Cold War. Each of these great powers failed the first condition. That is, they each had formidable rivals of roughly comparable strength. Now, in a moment, I'll tell you uh, which societies I think do qualify as hyperpowers. But let me first say something about why tolerance of all things should be so vital to world dominance. There's actually a really simple and I think completely intuitive explanation. That is, to be world dominant, not just regionally or locally dominant, but world dominant, a society has to be at the very forefront of the world's technological, military, and economic frontier. And at any given historical moment, the most valuable human capital the world has to offer, that is the most brilliant people, the most creative people, the most driven people, the people with the most skills, the world's most valuable human capital at any point is never going to be found within any one ethnicity or within any one religious group. So to pull away from its rivals on a global scale, a society must pull into itself and motivate the world's best and brightest, regardless of ethnicity, religion, or background. This is what every hyperpower in history has done, and the way they've done it is through tolerance. Now, some of you must be thinking, if you heard the list of earlier hyperpowers I went through, you must be thinking, wait a second, she thinks the Mongols were tolerant? <laughs> Genghis Khan's ravaging hordes who slaughtered entire villages and then used the corpses as moat fill? who poured molten silver into the eyes and ears of their enemies. Can the Mongols, or even the British Empire, with its colonialism and white man's burden, really be described as tolerant? Well, yes, but that's because the tolerance that I'm talking about is not tolerance in the modern human rights sense. By tolerance, 
I don't mean equality or even respect. Rather, as I will use the term, tolerance simply means letting lots of different kinds of people, even if you don't particularly like them, live, work, and prosper in your society, even if only for instrumental reasons. To be a little more formal, I will use tolerance to refer to the degree of freedom with which individuals or groups of different ethnic, racial, religious, or other backgrounds are permitted to coexist, participate, and rise in society. Note that tolerance, the way I'm using it, is a relative concept. What matters is not whether a society is tolerant according to some absolute ideal standard, but only whether it's more tolerant than its rivals. This is like the old joke about the two friends who go hiking and discover that they're being chased by a bear. One of the runners immediately sits down and starts putting on his running shoes. His friend then says, are you crazy? You'll never outrun that bear. To which the first hiker replies, I don't have to outrun the bear. I only have to outrun you. <laughs> Similarly, in the late 19th century, there was plenty of anti-Semitism in the United States. But for the Jews who were fleeing pogroms in Europe, America was a relative haven and land of opportunity. So that's what I mean by relative tolerance. One more preliminary clarification uh, to avoid any misunderstanding. My thesis is not that more tolerance always leads to more prosperity. It would be nice if that were true, but sadly, plenty of brutally intolerant societies have become rich and powerful. Nazi Germany is a case in point. Rather, my thesis is really much more narrow, and it's only that tolerance is necessary for world dominance if you want to be a hyperpower. Now, whether it's a good thing to be a hyperpower or whether it's good for the world to have a hyperpower are totally different questions, which we can come back to later. Let me now turn to some concrete examples, beginning with the hyperpowers of antiquity. Basically, in ancient times, tolerance was the only way to build the largest, most powerful military. So if you limit your army to, say, only pure-blooded Spartans, your army's going to be only so big. It's going to be inherently limited in size because how many pure-blooded Spartans are there? By contrast, if you open up your military to warriors of any race or background, you can amass a really huge army. The world is your limit. And this is exactly what the Achaemenid Persians did. Founded in 550 BC by Cyrus the Great, Achaemenid Persia was history's first hyperpower. In terms of size, it dwarfed, in fact, conquered and annexed the great kingdoms of Assyria, Babylonia, Mesopotamia, and Egypt, as well as the Greek city-states. At its peak, the Persian Empire ruled 40 million people, nearly a third of the world's population. How could a relatively small number of Persians conquer and govern so vast a territory and population? Through tolerance. In contrast to rival kings, who usually tried to show their power by forcing their own gods on conquered peoples, Cyrus the Great did just the opposite. He and his successors were famous for their willingness to let conquered peoples worship their own gods, speak their own languages, and follow their own laws and customs. In addition to making conquered peoples more compliant, the most crucial benefit the Achaemenid kings derived from this kind of strategic tolerance 
was that it allowed them to build the largest war machine ever known to man. The Achaemenid army was a colossal multinational force, drawing its strength from Greek mercenaries, Venetian sailors, Libyan charioteers, and hundreds of thousands of foot soldiers from Ethiopia, Bactria, Sogdiana, and elsewhere in the empire. But the Achaemenid's legendary tolerance was not followed by one of the later kings, Xerxes, famous villain in Hollywood, uh, whose brutality and intolerance are usually said to have sparked resistance and rebellion throughout the empire, triggering its decline and eventual disintegration. Now, in fact, it's, it's really hard to know whether Xerxes' intolerance actually led to the decline or whether his intolerance was a response to a decline that had already begun. I mean, most likely both propositions are true. So uh, I just want to highlight that my thesis is asymmetrical. I make a very strong claim about the rise. I say that tolerance is a necessary uh, but not sufficient condition for achieving global dominance, but only on the decline. I just say that decline is almost always associated um, uh, with uh, intolerance. In any event, after the fall of the Achaemenid Empire around 330 BC, the world did not see another hyperpower for another 400 years until Rome's high empire in the second century AD. Now for lack of time, I'm actually not gonna talk about Rome. Instead, I'm just gonna make two points. First, Rome far exceeded Achaemenid Persia in its tolerance. Like the Persians, Rome built its massive world-class military by incorporating warriors from every nation. But Rome went so much further. Whereas all the Achaemenid Persian kings and virtually all of its governors were all Persians, in Rome, there was no ethnic ceiling. The Romans permitted educated men of any race or nationality to rise to the very highest positions of authority, including even the position of emperor itself. The emperor Septimius Severus, for example, was a North African married to a Syrian. Second point about Rome. Again, unlike the Persians, Rome combined its tolerance with an uncanny ability to Romanize. That is, to make conquered foreign people feel Roman and to think of themselves as Roman and to identify proudly with the Roman Empire. Later, I'll talk a little bit about how Rome did this with, I think, some very sobering implications for the United States. Rome lasted longer than any other hyperpower in history, but of course it too eventually fell. Among the many causes of Rome's fall, one of the most important was Rome's sharp turn to intolerance, both religious and ethnic. In 312 AD, the Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, and the Roman Empire, so long famed for its religious openness, embarked on an intensifying wave of persecutions. As Montesquieu later wrote, unlike the ancient Romans who fortified their empire by tolerating every cult, their successors reduced the empire to nothing by cutting out one after another all the sects incompatible with the dominant one. At the same time, Rome's ethnic tolerance was pushed beyond its breaking point by the influx of large populations of Germanic barbarians from the north who were viewed as unassimilable. The Romans were frightened and disgusted by these Vandals, Goths, Visigoths, and other Germans. They were repelled by their smell and their huge beastly limbs 
and by the rancid butter they smeared in their yellow hair. For the first time, Rome adopted apartheid policies, barring intermarriage and segregating the Rome Germans, who were subjected to growing hostility, violence, and even massacres. The Germans reacted with a vengeance. In the fifth century, Germanic tribes sacked Rome, overran Gaul, took Carthage and North Africa, and sacked Rome again. By 476, the Western Roman Empire was no more. Now, in my book, I discuss two other pre-modern hyperpowers, Tang Dynasty China and the Great Mongol Empire. And for lack of time, let me just talk very briefly about the latter, the Mongols, uh, which is my own favorite case. I think it's absolutely fascinating. The Mongols were nomads. Even their leaders, or khans, were illiterate. The Mongols had no science, no engineering, no written language of their own. They had no architecture. They lived in yurts or tents made from the felt of yaks. The Mongols did not even have the technology to bake bread. And yet, the Mongols came to rule over an empire far larger than the Romans ever conquered. Half the known world, including the most magnificent cities of the time, Baghdad, Bukhara, Kiev, Moscow, Damascus, and Samarkand. How did the Mongols do this? Again, through tolerance. First, Genghis Khan, the founder of the empire, deliberately and very ingeniously overcame the clan and tribal animosities that had divided the people of the Mongolian steppe for hundreds of years, uniting them under a single identity, the people of the felt walls. In this way, he put together an inter-ethnic army large enough to conquer northern China. From there, Genghis Khan shrewdly recruited men from conquered populations with the skills and technology that the Mongols themselves lacked. Most critically, Genghis Khan drew into his service large numbers of Chinese engineers who knew how to construct powerful siege engines with portable towers, retractable ladders, and massive catapults that hurled stones and flaming liquids. The imagery is from like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> It was only by incorporating these foreign engineers who actually traveled with the Mongol army and often built these instruments of attack right on the spot. They would just cut down trees and build these siege engines. It was only by incorporating these foreign engineers that the Mongols were able to overcome the great walled cities of Central Asia, Persia, and Eastern Europe. For all their ruthlessness and battle, the Mongols were far more religiously tolerant than any other contemporaneous power. While Christian Europe was burning heretics at the stake, Genghis Khan, who himself uh, worshipped nature, he was an animist, declared religious freedom for all subject peoples. His sons and grandsons married wives of all religious and ethnic backgrounds, and their armies included Buddhists, Muslims, and Christians of every sect. In the end, different parts of the Mongol Empire collapsed at different times, but Everywhere, decline was accompanied by a stark turn to ethnic and religious intolerance. By 1300, the Mongol Khans of Russia and Persia had converted to Islam, and they became increasingly fanatic in their persecution of non-Muslims. In China, the problem was ethnic intolerance. Unlike Kublai Khan, he was the first Mongol Empire, uh, emperor of China who loved Chinese culture and embraced it and protected it. Unlike him, 
The later Mongol rulers grew more and more paranoid and anti-Chinese. With one Mongol minister, just before the Mongol Empire fell, uh, with one Mongol minister proposing that all individuals in China, surnamed Chang, Wang, Liu, Li, and Chao, be executed. This plan would have eliminated 90% of China's population. <laughs> but before it could be carried out, the Mongols were sent fleeing back to the steppe by the new Ming Chinese rulers. This brings us to the end of the pre-modern hyperpowers. The next society to arguably attain global dominance was, amazingly, the tiny Dutch Republic of the 17th century. The secret to Holland's stunning success was, once again, tolerance. But now, tolerance of a radically new kind. After the fall of Rome in 476 came the rise of the great religious empires, those of Christianity and Islam. Unlike the ancient polytheistic religions, which assumed that different people would worship different gods, I mean, every city had its own god, both Christianity and Islam insisted that there was one and only one true faith. In this sense, Christianity and Islam were inherently intolerant in a way that the ancient religions were not. Whether or not sanctioned by scripture, the result was a millennium of religious strife and bloodshed. In the West, the eras of the religious wars slowly gave way to the Enlightenment. Now, for the Enlightenment thinkers, tolerance was not merely instrumental. It was a human right. And thus was born the modern ideal of tolerance that we're all familiar with, enshrined in our constitution that we teach at law schools. Persecution was not just bad strategy. It violated the rights of man. The Dutch Republic was the first European state to embrace the new tolerance. In 1579, the United Provinces of the Netherlands declared that in its founding charter, that each person shall remain free in his religion and no one shall be investigated or persecuted because of his religion. Almost overnight, the Dutch Republic became a magnet for religious refugees from all over Europe. French Huguenots, German Lutherans, Mennonites, Quakers, pilgrims. Of the tens of thousands of immigrants that poured in, two groups in particular were pivotal to Holland's rise. First were the Jewish bankers, merchants, and diamond traders fleeing the Spanish and Portuguese inquisitions. These men, among the richest in the world, financiers to Europe's royalty, bankrollers of armies, turned Amsterdam into the world's commercial and financial center. Second, and more important, were the Protestant industrialists and artisans from Antwerp, Ghent, and Bruges, who brought with them not only wealth, but critical industrial secrets, the world's most advanced textile technology, and, as Max Weber would later put it, the spirit of capitalism itself. With the decisive contributions of these two groups, the Dutch soon became the financial, technological, and commercial leaders of the world, far and away the richest nation on earth with a global trading empire and an unheard of degree of upward mobility. But even so, and I'm sure many of you are thinking this, was the tiny Dutch Republic really a hyperpower? Um, I think the answer is yes, and I'm happy to make the case during Q&A. Um, but for now, let me just say that the rise of the Dutch Republic marked a dramatic transformation in the nature of both world power and tolerance. 
with the Dutch, commerce replaced conquest as the driving engine of wealth creation, and immigration replaced invasion and annexation as the best way to incorporate the world's best and brightest. Tolerance was equally essential to Great Britain, the successors to the Dutch on the world stage. For most of the 16th and 17th century, uh, what is now Great Britain was a pit of vicious religious and ethnic warfare. Protestants massacred Catholics, Catholics beheaded Protestants, Englishmen slaughtered Irish, Scots, and Welsh, all of whom retaliated in kind. There was, however, no persecution of Jews because there were no Jews. They had all been expelled in 1290. All this was to change after 1689. In that year, Parliament passed the Bill of Rights and the Act of Toleration. Twenty years later, England united with Scotland and Wales, and despite continuing anti-Catholic bigotry and brutality, by the early 18th century, Great Britain had replaced the Dutch Republic in reputation as the most tolerant nation in Europe. Because of England's turn to tolerance after 1689, three groups in particular, Jews, Huguenots, and most importantly, the Scots, were able to enter into British society with unprecedented freedom. The benefits to Great Britain were immediate. England became the new haven for Europe's Jews, who, with astonishing rapidity, founded the London Stock Exchange, um, brought diamond and bullion trading to Britain, and almost single-handedly made London the world's new financial center. Meanwhile, instead of wasting resources fighting the Scots, the English accepted them as fellow Britons and put them in the service of the empire. Indeed, the Scots became Great Britain's chief empire builders. The Scots were also the driving force in Britain's Industrial Revolution. The most critical inventions of the era, the Watt steam engine, the hot blast furnace, the integrated cotton mill, were all created by Scots, who incidentally were also Britain's leading thinkers and writers. David Hume and Adam Smith were both Scots. There's a reason that no one ever talks about the English Enlightenment, but they do, of course, talk about the Scottish Enlightenment. But if Great Britain followed the Dutch formula of tolerance at home, that is turning itself into a magnet for enterprising people from all over Europe, it basically pursued a Roman strategy abroad. Like the Romans, the British conquered, annexed, and colonized, with India as the jewel of the empire. Also like the Romans, the, Britons, the British were absolute masters at strategic tolerance. They harnessed local elites and local manpower filling the imperial army with native soldiers. In the First World War, more than one million Indians served the empire abroad. But, also like the Romans, British tolerance too had limits it could not cross. At home, the problem was Catholic Ireland. Abroad, the problem was racism. The British could never quite treat their non-white colonies the same way they treated their white dominions. And these limits on British tolerance, these failures to live up to its own Enlightenment ideals would come back to haunt the empire, helping to tear it apart in the 20th century. Meanwhile, another power, itself a former British colony, was rising. This brings me at last to the United States. Now, of America's ascent to hyperpower status, I'm gonna say almost nothing here. If my thesis is correct, that the secret to world dominance 
lies in relative tolerance, that is the ability to attract the world's best and brightest talent, then the United States, as a nation of immigrants, founded on the principle of tolerance, has always had a leg up. To be sure, while the United States has always been relatively religiously tolerant, it demonstrated extreme racial and ethnic intolerance for much of its history, most notably towards Native Americans, African Americans, and other non-whites. It was only after the Second World War, with Brown versus Board of Education and the Civil Rights Revolution, that the United States began developing, however fitfully and imperfectly, into one of the most ethnically and racially open societies in world history. Not coincidentally, this was also the period in which the United States achieved world dominance. Now, in my book, I do try to carefully make the case that America's growth and success always, from the beginning, from uh, westward expansion to the industrial explosion, to its winning the race for the atomic bomb, to Silicon Valley and its domination of the computer age. I try to make the case that all these things were direct products of immigrant contributions, but I won't try to make that case um, here tonight. Instead, what I wanna do now is to return to the 21st century and talk about the implications of my thesis for the United States today, focusing um, uh, principally on the international dimension, that is, on America's place in the world in the 21st century. For all the dramatic transformations of the last 2,000 years, the United States today, amazingly, faces the same fundamental problem confronted by every hyperpower in history. But precisely because it is a modern democratic hyperpower, the United States is especially ill-equipped to deal with this problem. Let me explain. Every hyperpower in history has faced a difficulty that for lack of a better term, I will call the problem of glue. Um, the problem of finding ways to generate goodwill, cooperation, and ideally loyalty among the foreign populations that are conquered and dominated. History's first hyperpower never solved this problem. As the Achaemenid Persian Empire expanded and came, um, it came to include and encompass increasingly diverse peoples, the problem was the empire had no overarching political identity or glue to unite it. Only sheer military might held it together. So under Persian rule, Greeks and Egyptians certainly didn't see themselves as Persians. They hated the Persians. So when a stronger, more charismatic military leader, Alexander of Macedon, swept through the region, elites throughout the empire simply switched their allegiances. They were not traitors because they had never been patriots. Of all of history's hyperpowers, only Rome really solved this problem of glue. The British actually came very close, but only Rome did it really brilliantly, uh, which I think goes a long way towards explaining its spectacular longevity. Now, it's very popular these days to compare the United States to Rome. There are many fabulous books doing that, and I think it's a terrific comparison in many ways. But ancient Rome had one huge advantage over the United States. And that is that Rome could make the people it conquered and dominated part of the Roman Empire. 
defeated peoples from Scotland to Spain to West Africa all became subjects of the greatest power on earth. Even more significantly, Rome turned large numbers of conquered men, both elites but also common soldiers, into Roman citizens, clothed with the high status and privileges that such citizenship entailed. By extending citizenship to Britons, Gauls, Spaniards, and Africans alike, Rome managed to Romanize vastly different peoples living continents apart, creating a common political identity, generating loyalty among its far-flung subjects. The United States can do no such thing. Because it's a democracy, the United States does not try or want to make foreign populations its subjects, and certainly not its citizens. So when the U.S. government speaks of bringing democracy to the Middle East, it is not contemplating the people of Iraq and Afghanistan voting in the next U.S. presidential elections. And this has been America's primary dilemma as a modern hyperpower. America does not only dominate Americans. Even today, with all our problems, um, through our enormous economic leverage, our multinationals, our military bases in over 60 countries, the United States projects its power into every corner of the world, from Bolivia to Indonesia to Kuwait. But outside its borders, there is no political glue binding the United States to the billions of people who live under its shadow. The great mistake made by so many influential voices over the last 20 years, and these are both liberal and conservative voices, the great mistake lies in assuming that the spread of markets, democracy, and American brands and consumer culture would be enough to Americanize the nations of the world, creating common values and even a desire for American leadership. This assumption was as naive as the belief that liberated Iraqis were going to greet American troops with sweets and flowers. Wearing a Yankees baseball cap and drinking Coca-Cola does not turn a Palestinian into an American. Today, even with our own economy reeling, the United States still faces billions of people around the world, most of them poor, who want to be like Americans, but don't want to be under America's thumb who want to dress and live like Americans, but who are denied visas by the U.S. Embassy, who are told over and over that America stands for freedom, but see only the American pursuit of self-interest. So in my opinion, on the international front, the crucial challenge for the Obama administration will be whether America can address this problem of glue. Uh, it may help in the short run that our new president is African-American, biracial, his middle name is Hussein, but that will only go so far. The real question is, can the United States find new creative mechanisms, whether institutional or commercial, or through some marriage of constitutional and international law, through which the United States can, without losing its sovereignty, create a kind of common identity with the billions of people around the world who feel dominated, giving others more of a stake in America's success and leadership. Now, there's a serious internal challenge too, I'll just flag it, and this has to do with our own immigration debate and our own tolerance and glue within the United States. Uh, can we remain a tolerant, open nation 
in the face of pervasive insecurity, continuing job losses and layoffs, and the threat of terrorism. While the United States has certainly had its imperialist moments, uh, the thesis of the book is that the real secret to the United States success over the generations has been its continuing ability to attract the world's most enterprising, most innovative, and most talented, whatever their background or skin color. Can recession-stricken America be remain such a magnet? Now, my own answer, and this might surprise some of you, is cautiously optimistic. Um, part of the reason I'm optimistic is because the election of Barack Obama uh, is a huge boost to our reputation as a land of opportunity. I mean, people just can't believe that somebody like that really could make it. Um, it's been a, um, uh, another reason I, I'm cautiously optimistic is where else will the world's best and brightest go? And this brings me to the topic that I want to close with. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about China, the rising power that uh, everybody has its eye on, their eye on. And my thesis, again, has some clear and I think surprising implications. So I think that China will almost certainly continue to grow and develop, and uh, it's doing lots of things right. It's been pouring money into education and R&D. It knows it has a creativity problem. It's sort of trying to build that from the top down. It'll be interesting to see if that can work. Uh, it's been doing a much better job than the United States on uh, the foreign relations front, at least for, for, for many years. But if my thesis is correct, China cannot become a hyperpower, which again is an extremely rare phenomenon, right? It's not surprising that it can. In all of human history, we've only had six or seven. Um, but the reason in China's case is very simple, and that's because China is a quintessentially ethnically based nation. It's the opposite of an immigration nation, immigrant nation. And it's just not able to pull in the world's best and brightest talent. So while even today you see significant numbers of highly skilled Chinese engineers continuing to move to the United States, wanting to become U.S. citizens, you just don't see large numbers of skilled Americans and Canadians and Europeans moving to China, wanting to become Chinese citizens. Now, China is a great test case for my thesis. And if I'm proved wrong, I'm uh, happy to admit it. The reason it's a great test case is because China has 1.3 billion people. It doesn't want any more immigrants. It's got a fifth of the world's population. Still, my thesis says that that fact alone will prevent it from becoming a hyperpower. And to repeat, the reason for that is because at any given point in history, the best human capital there is, the smartest, most innovative people, are never going to be found all within one ethnicity, not even the Chinese. Um, so until China can pull in the best mathematician from Chicago, the best engineer from Lebanon, the best guy from Jamaica, it can't achieve t global technological and therefore military and economic dominance. And by the way, this may suit China just fine. It may not want to be a hyperpower, which as we've been learning uh, sort of the hard way brings its own burdens and global resentments. And this is maybe even more important, don't forget, even if China doesn't become a hyperpower, the United States could still lose its hyperpower status. That is, China or, and the EU and Russia could all maybe grow in strength so that we go back to a world of superpowers. That is, a multipolar world in which power is much more evenly distributed against, uh, across several nations. 
Now, I have views about the EU, too. I don't think they can become a hyperpower either. I'm happy to talk about that uh, during Q&A. But to wrap up, I guess, um, uh, surprisingly, I am more upbeat than most people at this point. Um, I've spoken to lots of different audiences, and I know that many, both abroad and domestically, believe that the United States is clearly in decline and uh, indeed no longer a hyperpower. The era of domination is over. I actually think it's far too early to write us off. The golden age of Rome spanned 100 years. And during that time, the empire experienced many abyss-like downturns, including a horrific plague, invasions, and rebellions. Another great example, I and mean, it's interesting when you take the longer view of history, Britain, in 1825, just after the British Empire entered its heyday, this is a very interesting parallel, England suffered a massive stock market crash and bank panic, followed by a serious recession. But Great Britain recovered and went on to enjoy another 70 years of global dominance. Now, it's certainly possible, if we can't pull ourselves out of this economic mess over the next uh, decades, that we will go back to a multipolar world order. But I guess my thesis suggests that there is no other country better suited to replace the United States. Also, if anything, the historic election of Obama is actually a startling embrace of tolerance, right? It's not the intolerance that in my research I found is usually associated with decline. So I think that if we can sort of get back on track, and it's going to take a while, there's no reason to assume that the American era is over. Now, there are lots of other things I'd like to talk about, uh, and I'll be happy to do that during Q&A. There is one lurking question in particular that we might want to address, and that is, uh, should the United States even want to be a hyperpower? Um, because in a sense, the bottom line of my book is that as a democratic hyperpower, we suffer all the costs of being a hyperpower, right? We're the object of global resentment. We're a target for the world's disaffected without being able to enjoy the benefits that past hyperpowers did. So when Rome conquered Dacia, which is now Romania, it just went in and looted and took one million pounds of uh, silver and gold. The United States can't do anything of the sort. So by way of conclusion, let me just say uh, that my own view and um, I think the view of most Americans is that if America is destined to remain globally dominant in the decades to come, I think it should be a hyperpower not of coercion, imperialism, and military force, but rather a hyperpower of opportunity, dynamism, and moral force. Thank you. Higher, like 90, 98. Yes, we do. Uh, mm -hmm. United States. Uh, China is, it has a lot of minorities. I think I, I, the count is maybe 50, but uh, it's not the same thing. First of all, those minorities are very, very small in size. And secondly, they are almost all actually economically uh, poor and oppressed minorities. So they are not um, 
for whatever reason, you know, uh, whatever reason people disagree, they are they are not the dynamic aspects of the uh, of the Chinese economy. There are differences in China. It's interesting, you know, Shanghai and there, I mean, there's certain um, uh, even my own province, but it's not coming from those uh, minorities. But don't um, I want to reiterate? I mean, I think China can continue to rise to become a huge superpower, and maybe the U.S. will be only a superpower too. So uh, I'm not talking about. Uh, I'm still talking about a big deal. I just don't think that it can replace the U.S. as a hyperpower. After all, so few powers have. You know, it's rare to have a unipolar world. I have a question vis-à-vis Esther's introductory comment that the spread of democracy is somehow harmful because I think that might actually be the glue that you're speaking of. In in regards to China. I have the highest respect for the intelligence of the Chinese people, and it seems to me that the, the people in China who actually seriously think about political philosophy would reach the opinion that democracy is the best form of government, but it's the, the idea of switching over from where they are now to a democratic society that should, I think, build in stone-cold terror. So I'm just wondering yeah. what, what yeah. your thoughts Great. Yeah. Well, uh, well, first of all, I agree with you that I think democracy is the best possible system, the ideal. And the title of my book is a little bit um, misleading. Uh, I think I'm all in favor of the spread of democracy. My book, my first book, was about how difficult it is to just... Uh, Basically, um, you can't plug in democracy like a light bulb. It's very, very difficult to implement it in societies with completely different religious and ethnic structures. So that's what that was, book was about in developing countries. Not that it's not good you know, for there to be spread of democracy, but just the pitfalls, especially when you have something called market-dominant minorities. Um, now, as to whether democracy can be the glue, you know, I, I, I know what you mean. That was always the vision. That's what I meant. Um, and I still partly think that the idea, along with rule of law and sort of, you know, this enlightenment values, the problem is that the experiment we've had over the last 20 years in how to do that really hasn't worked. Um, and that's the subject of my first book. It's, we haven't, you know, one of the things the Romans did so well is the Romans made everybody feel that if the Romans did well, they would all prosper. So there, you know, for a long time, everybody wanted Rome to do well because they felt, and we just haven't conveyed that message. Um, and I think it's a shame because I think, you know, I mean, I, 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 there's much of what you say that I agree with, but that's not been the perception of the world. And again, that's more the subject of my, of my, um, of my first book. Um, I will say also that it depends what you mean by democracy. I mean, if you're just, one of the things I'm critical of is if you just ship out ballot boxes. Uh, free and fair elections brought Hugo Chavez to power, uh, brought Hamas which, uh, to power, uh, it, you know, in the Palestinian Authority, Hamas is an openly... Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a party that supports uh, suicide bombing. Majority voted for that. Um, Slobodan Milosevic in the former Yugoslavia was elected by a majority. So I don't disagree with you. I just argue that democracy has to be more than just overnight elections. Um, and finally, as to, um, yeah, maybe I'll stop there. I'll stop there. It's a, it's a big topic. Beth Huddleston has a question. Real quick. This is actually a follow-up to that about the glue part of it. How about English? Our language becoming the glue that will keep the spread of the United States to Germany. 
Um, I think that can be part of it. I mean, I think that there's a real opportunity actually right now. I think the glue has to be a little bit more, a little deeper. Um, people really have to identify. I mean, it's fascinating to look at the Roman Empire again because you really had people in Africa. I mean, you could see there was the transmission. There's half of it's just like the United States. You would see togas and gladiators and coliseums everywhere. If you go to Africa or Spain, you'll see it. And that's like the United States. We have our Starbucks and the English, and you know, that's all over the world. But the one difference is that we can't give foreign peoples in the Middle East and in, you know, Bolivia any real strong sense of being American. You know, we, they're just not. We, they, they, can, they can be sort of in our, our sphere, but they... And so I think it's actually a trickier challenge than just English. I think it has to be... Um, something more about aligning incentives. And it's a good moment right now, you know, with the new administration. There's so many global problems. So if the United States can take a leadership position, you know, not arrogantly, but sort of like in cooperation, but take a leadership position and sort of say, look, we're all in this together. And with our leadership, everything's going to get better. I mean, that's the kind of self, you know, that's the kind of uh, thing I'm more thinking about. Um, and other forms of glue would be training people from abroad. I, I do think when people come here and are educated here, they, you know, I sort of believe in the system. I feel like if people experience uh, the West, they will, they will see its value and prefer it. You know, so that's another way. Multinationals can also be a way. Uh, something provocative I put in the book, actually, uh, that many multinational corporations, you know, like Google India, when they train high-level managers, those people in India have a sort of affiliation with, uh, with the United States company, at least, that can, um, that can you know, uh, go part of the way. Yes, sir. Uh, the, uh, from, from my point of view, we should choose not to be a hyperpower, but instead to be one of the superpowers. Yeah. It seems to me that the cost of being a hyperpower is immense and, and un unnecessary. And if we choose to go forward with a glue that allows free trade and that allows a sol solution to the oil problem and get actually natural sources of energy, we have a way to allow those things to be the glue that ties the world together, and we don't have to have the immense military power to make that happen. If we don't solve those problems, I do think we have to have an immense military, and I don't have a retired admiral, so I don't think that I don't have a military <laughs> problem. But, the, uh, but, I, but I think you're in a position where you have to think about the future beings, not a hyperpower, but a superpower. You know, I. it's funny. I... I agree with 90% of what you say, but except for the very end. And here's what, why. I sort of optimistically like to see the U.S. as an accidental hyperpower. So I agree with you to the extent I, I disagree with the people who said we must, under any circumstances, do what it takes to stay a hyperpower. We have to keep our military, you know, whatever. I think that focus was the wrong focus. But ironically, I think if we do the things that you just said, you know, which is not be obsessed with staying a hyperpower, but rather just kind of do what we've done so well for two, you know, 200 years, that is being a land of opportunity, being tolerant, being open, having a most free market that anybody else has, people will want to come here. And it's, you know, this has been happening, uh, and if they continue to want to come here, I think that we're going to, we're going to, we can't lose our technological edge. And if you can't, if you, if we still have the technological edge, we'll still have our military edge. So that's the way I'm sort of thinking about it. I sort of just see it a little bit differently. I'd like to, uh, I, I, the ideal would be that we accidentally remain a hyperpower because we're not trying to be. <laughs>
We have two questions over here. Let's take them right here and then ship this. Okay. Uh, on the Roman Empire, you didn't really, you weren't given an opportunity to develop your, your thesis there. But basically, as I heard it, when the Christians got hegemony, they that's when the, they clamped down on the diversity and so forth. But are you rejecting the, the, the Christian canon about all these persecution diocletes? All these, starting with Jesus, I guess, the persecutions all the way through of, of various people. Are you saying that that was just overblown and that they were, that was really, that they were tolerated and they, uh, I mean. Uh, I'm sorry, let's see. Uh, you mean before Christianity came? I you said that they started their decline, or they declined right. after uh, Christianity. Right, right. Okay. Well, no, there was plenty of, yeah, I see what you're saying. And you're saying even before that, there was, but no, there was, this is kind of why I was stressing relative tolerance. There was plenty of periods of persecution, absolutely, during that era. Uh, persecutions of Christians, for example, for a long time. And then it was a fast, I actually do write about this in my book. It was fascinating when it switched, when he, when he, uh, Constantine converted, and then suddenly the people who were persecuted were the pagans and all these other, you know, other sub-religions. And it doesn't happen overnight. You're right that there, it's a much more a gray area during the period leading up to it. it. The intolerance was on the other side, too. In other words, it was against Christians, too. And I do say that. But it doesn't matter for my thesis. I mean, the idea is that, um, you know, I don't think I date the, the, uh, the, into the, the, the turn downwards necessarily to 312, but that's one marker. And it was around uh, the same time that there was this ethnic intolerance at the same time, you know, with the, with the Germans. So I have to kind of go back and see. But I, I take your point that it wasn't just with Christianity that there was persecution. We're going to take a question right there, and then Chip Pitts will be our last question. You, sir, right there. Blue shirt. Wish we had time to go all night, but <laughs> got to be sure we sell some books. In terms of global dominance and America's role for the future, how do you see America's future if we're not able to maintain superpower status? And you talked briefly about trying to merge the American system and constitution with a more world system. And then Gordon Brown recently talked about a new deal for the world led mainly by America and now in London, probably more than a little bit more the bring back of the London relationship with America. But do you think that without taking steps to become more global power, we'll see a more Rapid decline, maybe even fall below the level of superpower if they're not able to maintain high power status. Interesting. It's a great question. Um, well, I, I just let me. I don't know if I understand perfectly, but my own view is that we absolutely have to reach out and you know be globally cooperative and have these diplomatic efforts and be more uh, embracing. But I slightly disagree. I am not one of these people that thinks that we're remotely anywhere near being able to move to a world government. Um, it's just, I just don't think it's uh, possible, maybe someday, you know, but right now um, we are not only far from that, but I think with the recession we're going, you know, if you talk to popular Americans, we're going the opposite direction. So I still see the United States as the United States. When I said through some link, I meant, yeah, I mean, you know, basically we have our constitution and we're this country, we're sovereign. Are there ways that we can kind of make ties with other countries and other cooperative links that are not just, um, you know, that are meaningful, 
but that uh, still allow us to retain our sovereignty. So it's a big question, but um, you know, we could talk about it later. But I think that's, these are actually, it's what I talk about with my law students. What are actual mechanisms? I think business, I think the commerce is often a very important link, actually, you know, more so than a, than a world government, which, uh, you know, it's just a, I think at this point, a pipe dream. Good segue to my last question. Welcome to Dallas. I, uh, I really think it's a fabulous book and very persuasive and much needed in terms of the prescription, uh, the implications that you draw at the end. My first quick question is whether you've learned anything since the hard copy, which I read, for the paperback. But the more substantive question, of, and it builds on that last point you just made, is whether you know, we're not going to have world governance, government, but are we, going, are we conceivably going to move, as we seem to be moving toward a new governance where, as you say, multinationals, NGOs, uh, states, civil society, unions can work in large system and bigger system solutions to these global problems. Um, and to that end, I must confess, and I'd like to get you to explain to me why, at the end of your book, when you're giving the prescriptions, including more receptivity to immigration and so forth, you don't mention human rights. It seems to me that's the glue. And, it, and I would actually say that human rights, more than just tolerance, narrowly or broadly conceived, was the thing that gave us as a country our competitive advantage, attracted these immigrants, so the Bill of Rights with privacy, due process, open government, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt, could that not be the universal value system that in conjunction with new governance you know, gives us the, uh, the chance for sustained influence, if not uh, deeper power? That's a great question. Um, as to whether, first I've learned anything, I, uh, well, Certainly, the world just completely turned upside down on me, right? Um, so that, that's that's just uh, you know, uh, it, it, lots of places I go now, people just assume that the United States is not a hyperpower. When you talk to Europe, it's you know, um, what model is the United? Is the United States going to adopt Brazil's model? That's a question I get. Yeah. Um, so things have really changed globally that way. Um, your question is interesting. The, the middle part of it, I want to say yes. I'm very interested in the role of you know, for example. Um, central bank ministers of all different countries working together. That would be a sort of a glue, although that's kind of more at the elite level. Multinationals I do talk about. I actually think that can be, you know, it's not all good. They have problems. If, you, if the multinationals do it wrong, it could be the opposite of glue, right? Uh, but if you, you know, there are certain things that you could do. As to human rights, I think this is really interesting. Um, and at my law school, it's actually split, you know. So when you say human rights, I think you're talking about the rights enshrined in our constitution, right? The rights to, you know, you, uh, that's what you're thinking about. And I could not agree more. These are these fundamental rights of man. They're, it's equality, respect, tolerance, everything that we have in the Bill of Rights. Now, um, the, the sort of universal, the international human rights is, it's not exactly the same thing. And we, I think, are having difficulty making a transition, partly because there are global politics. You know, so, uh, you know, we didn't want to join the International Criminal Court. Now, I actually think, you know, I, I have lots of students who differ. I think that makes sense in some ways. We're, so, you know, it's, we were accountable to our country and people didn't want to. So, you know, uh, I mean, so the that part, the democracy has to come first. But, you know, with the international human rights, I teach and study it. There's like, it's, it gets sort of, it's hard to have meaning at a certain point. You know, the right to food, the right to education, the right to, it, it just, especially in this economy, sometimes it's just like this, these big ideals. And if you don't put your money where your mouth is, it doesn't, it's, it's not glue. So maybe my answer is that it could be, but it's interesting. How do you do it exactly? I don't think it's just by saying over and over, accept human rights like us. 
to be preachy about it. I think that doesn't work. So another question is, how do we actually show, because as you know, many, many countries right now think that we have violated lots of human rights. We have been, we're in big trouble on the public relations front. So, you know, I think that I agree, but there's a lot of work to bridge the gap between aspiration and where we are now. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.